It's the Forage Connection, grazing, growing, and feed with your hosts, Ben and Sarah. This morning we have Dr. Warren Rushi with us. He's the SDSU Extension Beef Feedlot Management Specialist. Warren's been with SDSU Extension for 18 years, and most of that time he spent it in beef extension work. So he's got some experience in the field and is always someone fun to talk to. And today we've invited Warren to talk to us um, about some of those concerns we see in the fall. Every year in the fall, we have producers asking questions about prussic acid, nitrates, and other concerns with toxicities that we see surrounding livestock and specifically cattle. So Warren, we wanna welcome you this morning and kind of kick this off with uh, some of those common toxicity and risk factors that we see with grazing animals and especially cattle in the fall. Well, Sarah, thanks for, and Ben, thanks for having me on. And you're exactly right. This is the, that it's that seasonal topic of um, prussic acid, nitrate, all those kinds of things that uh, pop up this time of year. And, and the, the part that I think is challenging is it, because it's a seasonal problem, um, it's not something we deal with all the time. So we have to go back and go back in the files, go back in the memory bank and figure out how to deal with that. So Warren, as we um, kind of break this apart, because there, there are a couple of different issues that we have to deal with and, and take into consideration when we're grazing in the fall. And I say grazing, I guess we probably have to take into consideration anytime we're harvesting forages here in the fall. Uh, let's maybe jump into one of the first ones that comes to mind is my mind is prussic acid. Um, especially we're sitting here where we've had a, a couple of frosts, hard frosts come through. And I know my phone's been ringing with those questions. I'm, I'm sure you guys have up north too. Uh, what do we need to really know about prussic acid and, and how can we make that forage um, still usable, still safe? Well, from a prussic acid standpoint, and you're right, that is a, that is a, we deal with that during that window right around that first killing frost. So what's going on? We're going to take a step back and think about, um, you know, what's going on in the plant physiologically. Um, Anytime you have injury and frost is certainly an injury, the plant cells rupture and some different compounds within the plant combine. And Sarah could probably, you know, I'm a knuckle dragon ruminant nutritionist, so I I probably should not be talking too much about agronomic topics, but and Sarah could probably answer this more expertly. But as those compounds combine, they form hyd- HCN, hydrocyanide. Uh, prussic acid is if we were if we called it cyanide, people would probably get a whole lot more concerned than they already are. Uh, and and as such, that's incredibly toxic to animals. And you, Ben, you touched on a little bit though that grazing versus um, harvesting. Uh, that's a key distinction, something really important to keep in mind. Uh, because with the case of prussic acid, those gases will dissipate over time. So it's a critically important for a few days right after the killing frost if they're grazing. If we're haying it or uh, putting it up for silage, we have some opportunity for those uh, toxic toxic gases or toxic compounds to dissipate and um, get us to a zone of safety. So that's one of the questions that I think producers have to consider is, are we grazing this or are we haying it? Uh, because our what we do, um, what our answer to that question is, uh, determines what our next steps might be. And Warren, I think 
that's some great advice because we really can't make decisions until we're thinking about, okay, what's the forecast, what's going to happen, and then making our next steps. And we've had some conversations recently about this. Uh, some producers do some really creative things in uh, trying to preserve the quality of the feed they have in the field because we know that these sorghum sedans and sorghums are, they can be great tools, right? But in the fall, we just see kind of a nightmarish situation when you're trying to make a decision of what to do with this high quality feed and you don't know if it's going to freeze hard enough or is it going to repetitively freeze. So what happens when we have a good hard frost versus a few light frosts in a row? Okay. So the, the few light frosts in a row to me are the higher risk um, event or the more challenging one to manage around. You know, if we, if it were to, let's say it get down to 25 degrees kills the plant dead. We know, you know, now whatever happened is it's happened. And uh, if we were grazing it, our book answer would be wait for seven days and then we should be fine. It's that series though of light killing frosts or borderline killing frosts that, that become challenging. We know that the, the lower portion or the, the smaller the plant is, uh, the greater the potential risk and so if we've got a situation where you know, we've killed part of the plant, but not all of it, maybe the next night kills another part. Uh, and we ended up with that kind of that rolling um, stress event where it's really hard to tell when, determine when we go from safe to risky back to safe again. So from that standpoint, from a prostic acid management standpoint, I would much prefer to deal with the hard killing frost where there's no doubt rather than the, you know, these lighter events that may cause some problems or, you know, we all know too, that, you know, if you've got, you know, varying heights, part of a more mature plant might be killed, but it didn't kill some of the newer regrowth down below. If they're grazing and they have the opportunity to go find that, that's where our risk is higher. That uh, extended, um, almost killing, but maybe not quite is, at least in my opinion, much more difficult and more challenging to deal with. You mentioned, Warren, what's, you know, happening in the plant. And sometimes people will ask, why, why does this happen when it freezes? And why isn't this a concern on a day-to-day -day basis? And it's really a, a plant physiology thing. And that's why these questions are so hard to answer because sorghums and sedan grasses and uh, sorghum sedan, sometimes even Johnson grasses on that list, they'll accumulate this. Like you said, it's basically it turns out being cyanide in the end, but they accumulate in the outer tissue of the plant. And when there's something that comes in and causes the plant cells to rupture, those compounds combine and they lead to that prussic acid release, which is where we have this lethal issue. And so a frost is one of those things that can cause those plant cells to rupture and anything else that causes rupture like crushing and trampling actually can do something similar, but freezing gets the whole plant. And then we're worried about the different parts of the plant tissue, you know, the leaves, like you said, if it's a very short plant, it could be much more affected because it's gonna be more concentrated. And we just don't know what those animals grazing out there. So what are some of the options that you talk to producers about when they're trying to determine whether to continue grazing or do something different? What is that something different we could try if we don't want to wait that seven days? Well, if, and I, you know, as it turned out, I just had this conversation with a consultant yesterday and 
and it was that comp, you know, do, do we graze it? Don't we? There's a lot of material out there and what, what they were leaning towards doing and which sounded like a really good idea. And I was fully supportive of it was to, uh, they were going to cut it down and either bail it or perhaps just swath graze that for later. Uh, in which case in both of those cases, giving that a little bit of time, um, again, it, you know, the prussic acid, the solution to this problem is time. Um, We'll talk about nitrates a little later. Uh, their time doesn't help us. So with prussic acid, my, you know, it's, if we're not going to harvest it or if that's not an option, my default has always been get the kettle off. Because if you read, theoretically, there's a treatment. Practically speaking, it's, you know, you're not going to get there. You know, no, you'll never get there in time. You know, the, these products are not things we have on our shelves. You'd have to have a vet. The vet's not going to get there in time. The animal dies. Uh, so from a practical standpoint, um, you know, our, our solution is we just you know, pull the cattle off um, and, and, and take the wait and see approach. Um, you know, and then it's also and then reintroducing them or then we do some of those standard kinds of things. Whenever we turn livestock onto something that may be suspect, it's you know, don't let them don't turn them out hungry. Uh, maybe limit time, you know, do some of the, you know, there may be some, some management things that we do to acclimate those, but you know, the, the safest answer is get them off of there. Um, sometimes what, you know, I know Sarah and I, you had this convert, you and I had this conversation where it was sorghum sedan on the outside and some other covers on the inside. And how do we deal with that? Um, I, I think, you know, there's a, some of this as we, you know, the sorghum sedans or the forage sorghums work great in a lot of these cover crop mixes. I think one of these things is, you know, what, how, and how do we incorporate those in, in thinking of terms and risk? And siling will also help. Uh, again, it's that time issue. Some of it is, uh, you know, the, part of the fermentation product process. I think some of that cyanide gets used up or it dissipates out. Either way, uh, the, we have a, some length of time from the time of when that gas accumulated to when it's actually being fed to the livestock. And so chopping it for silage uh, could work really, really well. It also, you know, you know, the sorghums are kind of challenging sometimes to harvest in, in siling because they're too wet. So in some ways having a frost uh, might actually help us out a little bit uh, by making it a little easier to handle um, from a, you know, from a dry down standpoint. So yeah, that harvesting it as a, through the through an ensiling process uh, would be a great way to use this this feed stuff. I guess before we jump off of the the prussic acid topic here, just to add a little bit of clarity, um, we've thrown out sorghum sedan sorghums. Prussic acid is really a little bit limited when we talk about impacts to a certain group of plants. Correct? We're, we're talking about all of our, our sorghum species, sedan grass. Um, you mentioned Johnson grass, Sarah. Um, it's not something if we have, you know, millet, if we've got oats, we've got, you know, a, a brassica, you know, we, we have all these different <laughs> cover crop mixtures anymore. Sometimes, uh, you can't name everything in it. Um, so it's worth sometimes going through that seed list and looking and seeing, okay, do we have something that's in that sorghum family? Okay. We need to be worried about prussic acid at this time of year or, oh, nope. We chose to leave those out maybe because we knew we were going to use them, you know, for a fall grazing. Um, and then 
that's not something that we necessarily have to have as, as high a concern with. You're right. It's a it's a mostly a, an issue with the sorghum family. I was even doing some reading that even the pure sedan grasses are less susceptible than the sorghums. Uh, so, you know, as, as we think then, though, about grazing resources, that might become part of the, the thought process is, you know, do I have maybe I've got some areas we can graze that have no sorghum in it whatsoever that become the place, you know, the refuge, so to speak. Uh, for whenever that killing frost window hits, that I've got a place to go with the, all, the whole herd, um, you know, and, and then I can, we'll see what happens with the rest in terms of killing frost. Uh, so that, you know, I don't know if we talk about that much and, you know, and in my day-to-day world, I deal with everything that's already been harvested, so it's easy. Uh, but, you know, that might be something worth taking a, a look at is, you know, do I have a portion of uh, the cover crop or annual forage plantings uh, not including sorghums or sedan grasses as a way to mitigate some risk. And as a, a forage person sitting here with a couple guys that are great with livestock, I, I think we would all say that we don't want people to be afraid to use sorghums or sorghum sedan grasses. They're a great tool. It's great feed. Um, you know, if you're trying to improve your soil health from an agronomy standpoint, it's an awesome cover crop, but you really just have to think twice in the fall. Yeah. Yeah. My, my bias would probably be to, um, you know, depending on when that was planted to be looking at that as a, here in South Dakota as an August, September, July, August into September kind of grazing resource and have it, you know, fully utilized before frost um you know and then perhaps it'd be either some winter annuals if there was enough growth or some other feedstuffs i could move on to later um, to, to avoid some of that frost window warren one thing we haven't mentioned is regrowth so when we have issues with prussic acid and let's say that the producer swath grazed or cut it for hay or silage and uh, we have a frost even standing plants that have just had some grazing on them. We get that frost and then they want to regrow if it wasn't a hard enough frost. Uh, there's some risk factors there and uh, we'll let you touch on them. Sure. Yeah. That regrowth. It, um, so I, I was just, as we're talking, I was scrolling through some of our recommendations. And one of the things we put out is uh, you know, just don't graze sedan grass or those hybrids until the plants are at least 18 to 24 inches tall. Uh, because the shorter plants have an increased uh, risk of having prussic acid issues. So, you know, that is the, the challenge. Um, you know, and, and I would be especially careful uh, grazing the short regrowth. You know, that might be an instance where, let's say we did the swath graze or, or we simply bailed it, that uh, maybe the, probably the easiest approach is to just leave that alone until it is fully killed, dead, you know, even down to 20 degrees, there is no more regrowth. Let it wait a few days. Uh, then, then that becomes some uh, potentially valuable grazing that we can do later in the winter or later in the fall. Um, we've removed the risk because it's not regrowing anymore, given enough time so that there isn't an issue with uh, prussic acid accumulation. Uh, and it then becomes another place for 
either we can graze it off or we can just simply leave that and let it become a, you know, add to the soil organic matter. But I, I would be this time of year, I would plan on uh, if I'm going to cut it, um, we're done. I think because of that regrowth issue, uh, at least until after we've got a fully killing frost that dries the plant all the way down. And we were just discussing this with another uh, sorghum contact, if you will, Jeff Jackson uh, and I and Warren were talking about this last week. And one of the suggestions with the swath grazing concept is, okay, we can preserve the quality of the speed if we swath it uh, right now before the frost, but we want to leave and this is not an exact science, but at least at minimum 24 hours between the time we swath it and the time it freezes because it needs to wilt. Because if that plant is still green and it freezes, it can still go through some of this cell rupturing process because it's still got water in the plant. So if we can let it wilt for, you know, this was a, it's a rough science. We don't have data on this, um, but it needs to wilt for a while, at least 24 hours before it freezes, or you might have some of this, those same you know, wait seven day issues. And then you don't want to, you don't want to cut it too soon either because you cut it too soon and you're going to have regrowth before the frost. Despite that being a warm season plant, those grasses are great at regrowing when they're yep. grazed or they're cut, even though it's cold, they are so good at coming back. So we just got to watch that. We've been looking at something very specific, uh, you know, with our, our sorghum species with prussic acid something that's maybe a little bit more broad that we still have to take into consideration when we're talking about grazing this time of year are nitrates. Uh, can you just give us a, a really brief introduction, Warren, to why nitrates are a concern in the fall in particular, um, and maybe some things that we need to take into consideration in that, that management side? So yeah, you're right, Ben, that nitrates often get lumped together with prussic acid at this time of the year. Uh, partly because the symptoms are, well, frankly, the symptoms in a lot of cases are sudden death. Uh, they affect some of the same plant species, forage sorghums and sedans. Both of them are you know, maybe more of a challenge with grazing livestock. Uh, and, and so we often think about those two together. Uh, from a management standpoint, though, there's some very key differences between the two. First and foremost, um, as I said earlier, time is our friend with prussic acid especially either we can either wait it out to graze it or harvest it, give it some time to dissipate and the problem solved. Um, nitrates don't go away uh, unless we, they, we can reduce that uh, by, the, by putting it into the silage pile and getting a good fermentation. But if it's there and the frost kills the plant off, uh, we have nitrates, period. The challenge, so what nitrates, you know, we talked about prussic acid is you know, essentially cyanide gas, which, you know, we all recognize as a poison. Nitrate, um, it all depends on how it's metabolized in the rumen. So in the rumen, it goes from nitrate to nitrite. Nitrite is what uh, you know, crosses into the bloodstream, bloodstream and affects the animal's ability to carry oxygen. Uh, cattle or ruminants can uh, handle a certain amount of nitrate. Uh, before it essentially you know, overwhelms the system and then you know, all too much nitrite builds up. Uh, and, and I know, you know when we were talking off camera that you'd had Dr. Dronowski on your program, you know, she's done some work on grazing with these cover crop mixes where really questioning, um, you know, whether or not our book values are in fact 
as accurate as they could be perhaps for grazing livestock. And I'm not going to get into that too far because she's the expert and you've already talked to her. Um, but, you know, I think anecdotally, we've all talked to people using cover crop mixes that have gotten along, um, even though some of those um, you know, lab tests would say perhaps there's a problem. And I think it comes down to smaller meal sizes, um, you know, diff- giving that animal a little more time to metabolize that. Um, from a, I should also back up when I said nitrates can be a problem year round. Uh, and it really, what it, what happens is we got the animal that's taking up soil nitrate into the plant uh, in order to produce amino acids and plant protein. If there's something along the way that slows that process down, and again, uh, Sarah's the agronomist, so if I'm getting too far off, she'll correct me. Uh, But if there's anything that slows that process down and essentially traps it as nitrate somewhere in the plant, uh, that's where we start having problems from a livestock standpoint. So that could be something like drought, uh, any kind of plant stress, um, you know, or frost. And so, you know, when I think of nitrates, the I, I'm a little concerned sometimes with the stand grasses and the forage sorghums. I get especially concerned with oats. Um, you know, kind of as a sidebar, if someone asks me, I've got oats and I'm worried about it, I want to talk them into chopping it for oatlage and skipping hay altogether. Um, the fermentation process does a pretty good job of uh, converting nitrate into you know, amino acids or ammonia or something that doesn't pose a toxicity problem. So, so with any crop, that's my default position. If we've got to make, you know, if we have to salvage it, that's where chopping it for silage uh, really works well. Um, now we do have to make sure we've done everything right. Um, you know, one of my, in, you know, quite a few years ago now at this point, but when we had the drought of 2012, uh, one of my coworkers had talked to a producer where they chopped it too wet, didn't ferment well, and the actual test of nitrates went up, not down. Uh, So, you know, we we do need to make sure if we're doing that, we're doing everything correctly. Uh, But that ensiling process is really kind of the the go-to as far as dealing with higher nitrates and feeds. And Warren, we need a a full ensiling to, I mean, the, the full fermentation to really get the most benefit out of that. I know sometimes producers are a little stretched on feed and we chopped and you want to open that pile up a little early, but we really need to resist that temptation. Yeah. You need to let that go the, you know, the full 30 days or just a little longer uh, to let all of those you know biochemical reactions take place and take care of the problem. Um, you know, so you know, that could be an instance, though, too, is where if you've done some testing ahead of time and, you know, kind of know where you're at, then that may give you a little bit of safety. Um, you know, if, for instance, you know, you know, if you knew it was only 300 parts per million, that's less risky than some other options. The challenge with, I think, with anything with nitrate is because you've got that variability within the field, you might have some, you know, I think of the the rocky knoll that just didn't grow well or areas that, you know, where there's some water drainage issues and depending upon what part of the field got chopped where and where that is in terms of the silage mass may affect, you know, whether or not that's going to be an issue. Probably less of an issue with, you know, with silage simply because of the way we harvest that and store it, where it ends up, you know, we're 
taking a bigger area to put it into a truckload, then we or a wagon load, then we put a lot of wagon loads and truckloads and mix that together and pack that down and layer everything. Uh, and then we come in with the front end loader and take a take six inches off of the entire face of something that probably took us all week to, or maybe several days to actually get harvested. So I think it blends it out fairly well. I'd be more concerned about a dry bale. You know, if we, if that bale happened to be, you know, prim- primarily from a poor spot in the field, um, you know, our lab test is only as good as the sample we took. And if our sample wasn't real representative, or if we've got a lot of variability in a field, uh, we could get ourselves caught. So you know, these kinds of questions, I, I, you know, as we're talking about this, I've got my win- another window open on my computer that has my materials on prussic acid and nitrate because I've been doing this quite a while, but I still don't trust my memory. Uh, because of you know the fact that it's seasonal, don't see it all the time, uh, and you know those are these are, and the and the consequences of being wrong uh, can actually be pretty can be pretty high. I think that's a great point, Warren, and it's kind of ever changing. Um, if we have nitrates in feed, that doesn't necessarily mean we can't feed it, right? There's levels, and you mentioned testing, and it depends on how many parts per million that feed is at as to who we can feed it to, what class of livestock we can feed it to and how much they can get of it. And I know we discussed earlier this year, you and I were discussing that um, not all those charts are the same. And so there's maybe some more research that needs to be done on that, but there is kind of a general understanding. And maybe you want to talk about that a little bit of how we blend feeds and who we give them to who do have nitrates. So, you know, the big, you're right, Sarah, and I'm glad you brought it up because I'd kind of forgotten that, how depending on whose source you looked at, uh, some of those risk categories change a little bit. But um, with nitrates, um, the the quick answer is the solution is dilution. Uh, The more we dilute it out, the less problems we are, we have. Also, the pregnant animals are much higher risk than non-pregnant animals. And so if you've got a choice, um, you know, if you're a you know, cow-calf slash cattle backgrounder here in Nebraska, the Dakotas, you know, I, you know, I've got some feedstuffs that are maybe a little questionable. I'm putting that in the, the background and cattle diet and not to the bred cows or, you know, or not to you know, those bales of hay get ground for young stock, not, you know, not those bred cows in the third trimester, or I save that, or I save it until after we get done calving and start doing some strategy. Um, As you're talking about that, I had a a phone call a few years ago from a horse breeder in South Dakota, pretty prominent, prominent within that industry, wanting to know what the tolerances for nitrates for horses were. And of course I had absolutely no idea. I don't know if anyone's done the research, and what I finally asked him, I said, uh, are you planning on feeding this to bread mares? And he said, yeah, yeah, I'm going to have to. I need, we're short on feed. I said, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't touch it. I said, because I can guarantee you if you do that, the abort, the, the mare that will abort is the one that's carrying the $50,000 colt. <laughs> and he said, yep, you're right. So sometimes, you know, with some of these, it's a little bit of a risk reward. Um, you know, how much are we risking versus what the reward is? That was an extreme example. You know, that's a, an operation that, you know, could very well produce colts that sell for that kind of money. Um, you know, if I'm feeding, you know, 
some backgrounded calves, uh, my risk level is much different. And, you know, I can probably dilute that. I was probably going to dilute those feeds anyway. Uh, and so I'm not as concerned. So I guess the point of that was, you know, as we, we've got those risk categories, but what we can really think about is, you know, think about risk in a very broad sense uh, that, you know, prioritizing the bred females within the herd uh, and saving some of this suspect feed to dilute it out uh, to go to the young stock. And in those cases, our, our danger then becomes if we run into hot spots. So like, you know, I've, I've run into instances where oat straw tested too high. Now that becomes real challenging because we're, you know, probably needed for bedding and, you know, there's some things that go on. I think, you know, I don't know if that person used it or not. Um, I suspect they did. I don't know if they were careful not to put it out with cows or not. Uh, but my suspicion is that, you know, a, a cow isn't going to suddenly slug feed 30 pounds of straw. And so if there was some you know, hot, if they did consume some of it, it was in small enough doses that they got away with it. Uh, don't misread what I just, or mishear what I just said. <laughs> so, you know, we, we do still want to be you know careful about the, te- the levels, uh, but it's, it is a complicated, it can be a complex a decision is you know weighing that risk reward uh, versus when we use some of these feedstuffs. I I really like how you're presenting that, Warren. Just thinking about it as a you know understanding what that risk level is, how much can we tolerate in our operations, um, and then you know how can we manage that risk somewhat. And I, I appreciated what you said about sampling and <clears throat> excuse me here. I appreciate what you said about sampling, you know, getting a, we, we talk about, you know, sampling our hay and, and making sure that we do that. And it's really easy to just plug a few bales at the end and, and call it good, but we have to get a really well representative sample if we really want to uh, capture what's going on out there. And, and so that helps us understand that risk. The tough part of this, sometimes it also depends on how short a feed we are. You know, if we've got all kinds of feed resources, these decisions aren't necessarily as challenging is when our option is no feed or, or a bunch of oat hay that tests too high. Uh, you know, so it comes back to that you know, trying to, the more we can diversify our feed supplies, uh, the more options we have. Some of this might be some of the best arguments for buying mixer wagons of anything that you know we run into because the ability to mix this off, dilute it with something else, um, you know, really could, it, it could really make some what otherwise would be very not terribly valuable feed into something useful. And I guess one other question that I might throw your way, Warren, when we're talking about utilizing this, then we really need to be considerate of the entire diet. You know, just one feed stuff, you know, if we're just have some hot bales, but that's a a small portion of that entire diet. Or um, I know I'll get questions sometimes about high nitrates and water sources. Yep. Um, and how that plays into the factor, but it, it's that big picture, correct, that we need to take into consideration. That's right. You know, if we're dealing with uh, water that's also high in nitrate, that um, you know that just adds to the load um, that our livestock are dealing with. Good news is, I don't think you know by and large that by itself isn't the problem. Um, and and I don't know if I've honestly run into that where we had that combination of 
high nitrates plus high nitrate feed. Uh, but you know, if that you know, if we were pulling water out of shallow wells that uh, you know were suspect uh, that could add to the problem as well. So that also makes some of this, uh, some of those recommendations, we might lean towards, you know, being a little more cautious than not, uh, just because of, uh, you know, we want to be careful we're not getting too close to the edge where we're perhaps inducing some abortions. And you bring up another good point, Warren, we probably don't have time to cover it today, but testing water quality any time of year um, is important too. And that's a pretty simple test that uh, you can get a hold of or bring a water sample in. I know in South Dakota, you can bring a water sample to many of our uh, extension regional centers or county offices. And I'm assuming that, you know, there's other places in the Midwest, of course, any lab can do that too. So another important thing uh, to keep in mind is, is those water levels. Yeah, just, you know, getting a kind of a baseline in terms of, you know, I, I know we've been talking nitrates and prussic acids this morning, but things like minerals and so forth, uh, it's good to know what we're dealing with. If we're you know, dealing with a lot of sulfate or some other antagonisms, you know, that's going to inform what we might want to do or have to do from a mineral standpoint. So we tend to ignore water um, and it's, I guess it's just not a... Uh, sexy glamorous topic but it's critically important but it yeah you're right uh, we don't pay enough attention as much attention to it as we ought to well it's like we said they drank it and they didn't die so we don't think about it that's right <laughs> you know? yeah. it's just not something we think about regularly sarah and i are building up quite the list of topics that we need to revisit so that sounds like it's another <laughs> one that we're gonna have to come back to well, Warren, is there anything that we've missed or, or any other um, things that we need to take into consideration, you think, as we consider using some of these forages as a fall feeding source? You know, I th- no, I think we've covered everything pretty well. And what I hope the takeaway is isn't to scare producers off away from using it. It's that, uh, you know, we can make excellent use of these feedstuffs. We just have to, there's a few things we have to keep in mind at this time of year in terms of management. One final thing that might be a bit off topic that we did want to mention yet today is the first annual meeting of the Northern Plains Forage Association coming up on December 1st. This is a group that you, Sarah, started about a year ago and has been a great resource for producers in Southeast South Dakota and the surrounding area. This year's meeting will be held in Brandon, South Dakota at the Holiday Inn Express on December 1st from noon till 4 o'clock p.m. Dr. Dan Undersander, Emeritus Professor from the University of Wisconsin, will be speaking on leaf loss effects on alfalfa yield and quality. Rebecca Kern-Lunberry of Ward Laboratories will be talking about NIRS evaluation of grass rations. Producer Brady Wolf will discuss alternative forages and grain rotations. And Dr. Peter Sexton of South Dakota State University will cover fitting soil health into forage production. The annual Northern Plains Forage Association annual business meeting will also be held at this time and CCA credits are available. Cost is free to association members and $10 for all other participants. You can sign up by visiting extension.sdstate.edu slash events or emailing npforage at gmail.com. Well, Warren, we appreciate you taking some time to join us and, and talk to us today. And uh, we just thank all of our listeners for joining in as well, uh, joining us here on the Forage Connection.